0: James shows us a faith that works. Good morning. You guys ready? Ready for a baptism? We'll do that in just a few moments. Uh, let's do a Bible study first. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. So the book of James is all about a faith that works. If you have a saving faith, it's going to make a difference in your life. And, and James is showing us what that difference looks like. What our life should look like if we have saving faith, real faith in Jesus Christ. What will our life look like if we are walking in vital union and communion with Jesus Christ? Now these have been pretty hard messages. Would you agree with that? You guys think these are pretty tough, but we like tough messages here at Desert Breeze, don't we? I mean, we we really do because we know that hard messages produce soft people, soft messages produce hard people. We want to be soft people. We want to be humble people before God, and so these, these messages certainly have been working us over, and, and we love that because we want our hearts to be tender before God. Take a look at your sermon notes. I've got a question for you. You don't need to answer out loud here, but if God were to grant you one wish, what would you ask for? What would you ask for? A man walking along a California beach was deep in prayer, and all of a sudden, he said out loud, Lord, grant me one wish. Suddenly, the sky clouded above his head, and in a booming voice, the Lord said, because you have had the faith to ask, I will grant you one wish. The man said, build a bridge to Hawaii so I can drive over any time I want to. Maybe that's not what came to mind for you, but that's what came to mind to him. The Lord said, your request is very materialistic. Think of the logistics of that kind of undertaking. The supports required to reach the bottom of the the Pacific, the concrete still it would take. I can do it, but it is hard for me to justify your desire for worldly things. Take a little more time and think of another wish, a wish you think would honor and glorify me. So the man thought about it for a long time, and finally, he said, Lord, I have been married for a number of years. My wife says that I'm uncaring and insensitive. I wish that I could understand her and women in general. I want to know how they feel inside, what they are thinking when they give the silent treatment, why they cry, what they mean when, when they say nothing, and how I can have the wisdom to make my wife truly happy. After a few minutes, God said, you want two lanes or four lanes on that bridge? That was totally uncalled for. That was just flat-out rude, wasn't it? Hey, you know what? I mean, us guys, we have a hard time understanding you gals, and you gals have a hard time understanding us guys, and so it creates conflict. James is going to give us some really great insight on conflict resolution here, and it's in the form of wisdom, wisdom from above. Look at your notes here. In 1 Kings chapter 3, when Solomon had just begun his reign over Israel, God came to him and said, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And so Solomon, out of all the things that he could have chosen, he asked not for wealth or power or fame, but he asked for, anybody know? He asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom. And then later on, Solomon wrote that wisdom is more valuable than jewels and nothing you desire compares with wisdom, Proverbs 3.15 and 8.11. Now, we live in a day and time of unprecedented access to information unlike any other time in history. I'm sure you would agree with that. I mean, we are inundated with information. Though we are drowning in information, yet we are dying of thirst for wisdom. We are desperate for wisdom. There's a major difference between knowing stuff, having a lot of information, And having wisdom, particularly in this area of having healthy, whole, and happy relationships. And so, last weekend, we learned the seriousness and strength and the sanctification of our words. If you didn't hear that message, you need to go online and listen to it or get our our DB app and listen to it. It's really an important message because it ties with this one. But we looked at the seriousness, the strength, the sanctification of our words. Our words can bring death or life into a relationship by what we speak, so we can bring death or life. And in fact, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So the big question that I think that James is now dealing with is so so how can we have words of... Words of wisdom that bring healing into a relationship. How can we bring life into our relationships through through what we say and how we interact and how we resolve conflict in our lives? And so that's what James is, is going to help us with. What does, that, what does that mean? What does that look like? So James is going to teach us what wisdom is because it comes in the form of wisdom, wisdom from above. What wisdom is, what it isn't. What wisdom does and how to get wisdom. Those are the four questions he's answering for us. So what wisdom is, what it isn't, what it does, and how to get wisdom so that we can have greater peace and wholeness in our relationships. Conflict resolution. That's what we're gonna talk about here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray before we uh, read our text and unpack these notes. So Father God, we live in a culture that is drowning in information, but dying of thirst for wisdom. Proverbs 16, 16 says how much better it is to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding rather than silver. James 1, 5 tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So we ask through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, give us wisdom, particularly in this area of our relationships. Teach us how to have Greater peace, wholeness, and happiness in our relationships for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So let me read the text and uh, kind of bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us. Uh, This is. James, He's kind of, once again, just showing us what our life should look like if indeed we have saving faith. In chapter one, we looked at trials. What should our life look like in the midst of trials and then temptations and then as it relates to Scripture, uh, that we are not to just be hearers of God's word but doers. Chapter two, we talked about mercy. uh, Specifically, no partiality, no racism, no uh, favoritism. That's what he talked about there. And then we moved to the second part of that chapter was faith. Faith without works is what? It's dead. And so we learned that. And then last weekend, we talked about our words, the Im- impact of our words, the power of our words. And now he moves into this wisdom, conflict resolution, starting in verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. He's just saying, don't cover it up. It'll be obvious. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. If you want to know why there is disorder in every vile practice in our culture, he tells us right there, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, you're going to have, you will have disorder in every vile practice, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. So let's take a look at our notes here. So what wisdom is, you can see that in verses 13 and 18. I've got those on your notes. I've underlined some key words, so we're gonna unpack those, but let me reread verse 13 and 18. Who is wise in understanding among you? He's gonna explain, what does that mean? What does that look like? By his good conduct... Let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. Verse 18 kind of gives us the the fruit of that. He says that this kind of person will produce a harvest of righteousness, not just right relationship with God, but right relationship with others. And, And this is sown, it's seeds that are sown in peace by those who make peace. And so here's your fill in the blanks. Here's your first one, what wisdom is. It is an attractive lifestyle, it is an attractive lifestyle of self-forgetfulness that produces peace in relationships. That's your your one, two, three, I think you got three fill in the blanks there. So what is wisdom? It is an attractive lifestyle of self-forgetfulness that produces peace in relationships. This is what our life should look like if indeed we have a, a saving faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, not perfectly, but over time as we walk with him. Now, let's unpack some of these key words that I underlined on your notes. So, you got first of all, good conduct. So, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? That word good means literally beautiful or lovely. He's just saying that your conduct should be beautiful. There should be an attractiveness to how we respond and how we do life as, as believers in Jesus Christ. The word conduct is not just something that we do occasionally, but it's literally a lifestyle. He's just saying that our lifestyle should be beautiful and our lifestyle should be consistent with God's Word. So an attractive lifestyle, good conduct, beautiful, lovely lifestyle consistent with God's Word. Psalm 19.7 says, God's Word makes wise the simple. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God is fully equipped for every good work. It's just, that's, that is a great way to live your life is what he's saying. You live it according to God's Word, and it makes your life look attractive. It makes it look beautiful is what he's saying here. So it's an attractive lifestyle of self-forgetfulness. What in the world does that mean? Well, look at the word um, meekness. The word meekness, the Greek word literally is humility. And I call it self-forgetfulness. It's also the same word that's used in the fruit of the Holy Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. You guys familiar with the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Gentleness is that word. It means humility. And so, humility. Now, what is Humility. What is humility? Well, here's my definition. It's actually not my definition, but I think it's the best definition. It's from C.S. Lewis, but I'm going to add to his definition. And he defines humility as humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less it's not, thinking, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You're not preoccupied with self. Why, why is that? Well, this is where I've added my part, because your heart is captivated by God's beauty and glory. You're taken out of yourself. My son and daughter-in-law just came back from Switzerland. They visited the Swiss Alps and all of that, and they, were, they said that they were just, it was breathtaking, And my son reminded me of a quote that I'd heard years ago, and I've even used it, is that nobody goes to the Swiss Alps, nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to build their self-esteem. You don't go there. You go there to be taken out of yourself. You're you're captivated by the beauty and the glory of what you see in the Swiss Alps or the the Grand Canyon. That's what God does to us when we encounter him, when we walk with him. It it takes us... It takes us out of ourselves. We don't don't become preoccupied with ourselves. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less because your your heart is captivated by God's beauty and glory. It is thinking of yourself less or looking at yourself less because inside you are supremely confident of your worth to God, and he is taking care of all of your circumstances. You you just rest in him. You're trusting in him. You see how much he values you you and you know that deep in your heart. And if, if you ever met a truly humble person, this is what they would look like. You wouldn't think him or her humble, but you would, you would see them as being unbelievably content and full of gratitude and incredibly interested in you. That would be a humble, humble person. See, people who love God with all of their heart are, are very contented people because they are, they are contented regardless of their circumstances because they always have what they most want, and that's God. They always have him, and so there's a contentment, there's a humility, and they're taken out of their self. They can think about others because of that, and, and so that leads to sown in peace by those who make peace. That's that next phrase. In other words, he's just saying, you'll be a peacemaker. And so it is an attractive lifestyle, so it's, it's a beautiful lifestyle of someone who's living consistent with God's Word because they've encountered Christ, they know God, there's a self-forgetfulness that produces peace in, in relationships. And, uh, and so they, they are peacemakers. What, what is peacemaking? Well, peacemaking is not conflict avoidance, nor is it conflict enjoyment, okay? Uh, we tend to fall... To, into one of those extremes. We tend to want to confront everybody or we don't want to confront anybody. All of us tend to... So we need to, we need to be able to get good at confronting and do it in love, speak the truth in love, but there's other times we, we probably shouldn't confront. We just back off and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute as, as love covers a multitude of sins as we work through those things. But, but peacemaking is not conflict avoidance or conflict enjoyment, but it's conflict resolution. It's conflict resolution. In fact, let me I gave you some verses there, and I'll remind you of some verses we talked about last weekend, but Romans 12, 9 through 21 are, I think, perhaps some of the best conflict resolution verses that Paul gives us. You might want to circle those on your notes, Romans 12, 9 through 21. And in that, in 18, the 18th verse in that text, he says, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. So what is he saying there? Well, we know this, that relationships are a two-way street. And you can only take care of your side of the street. You can't take care of their side of the street, but you need to take care of your side of the street. So he just says, make sure you take care of your side of the street. As far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. You're not responsible for their response or how they choose to to respond to to the conflict. But you're responsible for you. So you take care of you. As far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. So take care of your side of the street. And then later on as you work through that, at the very end of that text, he says, don't become, and I'll paraphrase it, he says, don't become like the evil that is being done to you, but overcome evil with good. So that's a peacemaker. They don't get drug into the fight they're not exchanging verbal abuse back and forth, which is very common in our culture today. They don't get drugged into that. They, they are above that, and they, they, they approach it with, with gentleness and love. So don't become like the evil that is being done to you, but overcome evil with good. And that's uh, Romans 12, 9 through 21. It tells us in Proverbs twelve eighteen Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So this is a person that has a, an ability to be able to speak words that bring healing into people's lives, that they're very healing, not piercing like a sword cutting down into their heart. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, a harsh word stirs up anger. So this is a person, this peacemaker is a person who can literally de-escalate a problem. You know, when people start getting all upset and all hot and bothered and ah, they can de-escalate the situation because a gentle answer turns away wrath, a harsh word stirs up anger. So they can kind of de-escalate that. They can bring calmness to it. They can talk in such a way that brings people to really begin to think about what's going on here. And so that's what he's saying here. Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So this is a person that brings life with what they say. Now, Now, what we're learning here is that wisdom is not about diplomas on the wall, but about a disposition in bringing peace, healthiness, wholeness, and happiness in relationships. If you want to go into more detail on any of these, we're going to be talking about more of this next weekend as it relates to conflict resolution. And Paul, uh, Actually, James is going to help us to kind of cut to the chase and get to the heart of why we struggle. There's an inner turmoil that's going on in our own heart that creates turmoil within our relationships, and he's going to... Hit the nail on the head for us next week. We'll talk more about that. But if you want to go into more detail, you can go online on our website or or get our DB app. And uh, we did a teaching series back in February of 2016. It's called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, where we go into more detail here. Or you could pick up Ken Sandy's book on peacemakers. He's written a number of books that are really helpful. Ken Sandy, S-A-N-D-E. And his website is really a great resource also. So that's what... What, um, what wisdom is, it is an attractive lifestyle of self-forgetfulness that produces peace in relationships. Let's see what it isn't, because he in verses the next few verses here, 14 through 16, he shows us what it isn't, kind of the opposite of that, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to, to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic... So he's kind of giving you the origin of that. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Here's your fill in the blanks. So it isn't an, it isn't an unattractive lifestyle of self-absorption that produces combat in relationships. As opposed to producing peace, it produces combat or chaos in relationships. Now, there's a number of words that I underlined in those verses there, in verses 14 through 16, that help us to, uh, to understand that. For instance, the word bitter jealousy. So he's just saying, but if you have bitter jealousy, what is bitter jealousy? Bitter jealousy is basically loving anything more than you love God, and you can't live without it, and, and others have it. And because other ha- others have it and you don't have it, it creates a bitter jealousy within you. So it's loving anything more than you love God, and you can't live without it. You're saying to yourself over and over again, if I have that, my life has meaning, hope, and purpose, and it's a, it's a created thing as opposed to the creator, and it creates this bitter jealousy. And of course, it also will create within us selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is a self-absorption that makes everything a means to an end. So if I'm saying about something that's a created thing, it can be a relationship, a bank account, it can be any number of things, that I need that to make my life have meaning and others have it and I don't and it creates this uh, bitter jealousy and this selfish ambition then people, my job, any number of things become a means to an end to get that. You can see how that works in our lives, and nothing will make you more miserable and unattractive than obsessive concentration on your needs, your desires, your ego, your record, but that's our culture. In fact, it's called expressive individualism, and it's even applauded in our culture. And it's, the Bible is saying that this isn't wisdom from above. This is wisdom that comes that's, that's very, very much a part of this it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And in expressive individualism, it goes something like this. Life is all about you, so follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Don't let anyone get in the way of your dreams and desires. You're the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. It's called expressive individualism. It's taught. It's, it's part of our culture, American culture. And it's taught in many American churches these days. And it's suicidal. It's suicidal. Now, why, why would I say that it, it's suicidal? Because look what he says. This is the origin. It's earthly. It's temporal versus e- eternal. It has no thought about eternity. It's all about me right now. In fact, the word secularism, when you talk about a secular culture, it means nowism. I'm living for now. I'm not even giving any thought towards tomorrow or 10 years or 20 years from now or even, even for eternity. Even for eternity. Oh, do I need to tell you, eventually, one of these days, you're going to die. You're not coming back here. You never will. And eternity is a long, long time. That's an understatement. You're dying. You're going to die. And we tend to live in a culture where we make a lot about now. And the Bible says, don't live for now, live for eternity. It's going to change the way in which you live. And that's why it's saying this expressive individualism is very earthly. It's temporal versus eternal. It's unspiritual. It's not from God's Holy Spirit. And then he says it's very demonic. When you think of demonic, think of pride or self-absorption. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. He does a good job at defining this. Through pride, the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. The same lie Satan told in the garden, he says to you and I. If you obey God, you're not going to be happy. Yeah, yeah. He created the heavens and the earth, but you're a whole lot smarter than him. You can find happiness apart from him. That's the lie, all the way, goes back to Genesis chapter 3. That's insane, but that's our culture, that's expressive individualism. I can fulfill myself apart from God, I can do my own thing, let no one get in my way. This is what he's describing here, that's why he's saying it creates all sorts of problems in our lives. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, because life's all about me. Spurgeon's, Charles Spurgeon put it this way, if you meet with a system of theology which magnifies man, flee from it as far as you can. But that's our culture we live in. By the way, once again, many churches teach a man-centered theology as opposed to a very God-centered. There's a major difference. You need to know the difference and recognize the difference. Now, now why is this such a big problem? Why is this expressive individualism such a big problem? because you didn't create yourself so you can't tell yourself what you were created for. You're trying to tell yourself what you were created for. You can't do that. You might have a certain level of success for a season, for a time, but ultimately, listen, you were created by God for God to give glory to God, and God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. You were created to find your deepest satisfaction in him and him alone. Nothing on this planet, nothing created can satisfy you like the creator. And it's insane to think otherwise. The Bible's really clear about that. And so, so when, when you and I are uppermost, when, we, when you are uppermost in your own affections, when you are your own God, expressive individualism is making you your God, pushing God out of the way and saying, I'll be God of my own life is that when you do that, disorder in every vile practice. That's what happens. That's what he's saying here. It's very, really practical here. So anxiety, bitterness, despair, hatred, slander, gossip, scorn, criticism. Now, conflict is inevitable. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with that? I mean, just think of the differences between men and women. Any guys out there get a little frustrated sometimes trying to understand your your spouse, your wife, significant other, the females in your life? Yeah, okay, thank you for that uh, Yeah, okay, there's two of us. There's three of us, three, any other guys? So, okay, okay, that's cool. Some of you are like, I'm not raising my hand. I'm sitting next to her. If I do that, she's gonna take a shot right in my rib cage. Boom! Yeah, how many ladies, how many ladies would say, sometimes it's really frustrating. The guys in your life are really frustrating. Oh, more hands. That's beautiful. I always knew that the women were more honest. Yeah, yeah, there's some, There's some. hey, there's frustration. That's just the gender differences. And then you take into consideration of background and upbringing and, and all sorts of things and education. And oh my goodness, you've got the making of craziness. I mean, that's, that's, that's it. Conflict is inevitable. Combat is optional. Okay? So it's how you deal with it. How do you deal with it? By the way, let me just say this. Let me say this. Don't run from conflict. We tend to cut and run. We, we get into a small group. We get a little conflict. We get into church. We get into a little conflict. By the way, that's God's work in your life. He's working, he's trying to bring stuff to the surface of your life. So conflict is not a bad thing. Combat yes. is, but conflict isn't. And so don't let it turn into combat. But you allow it to be an opportunity for you to grow in your maturity and intimacy, not only with God, but with other people. Because if you're cutting and running every time there's a little bit of conflict, you're not gonna grow. You're not gonna grow up. You're not gonna grow in maturity. You're not gonna grow in understanding and intimacy with other people to try to understand them more clearly, nor will they with you. And so that's, that's really important. By the way, let me just say this too. If you try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on your own through Christ, all of your relationships will become an effort to complete yourself. Did you track with that? Did you hear that? In other words, all you can bring into those relationships is, is a, a deficit, a neediness. But man, when you find your completeness in Christ, I mean, think about the difference that that makes in your relationships. You're going to be a giver. And you got two people that are givers in that relationship because they're, they're receiving from the abundance of the gospel and all that God is for them in Christ Jesus. And so we talked about it last week, word problems are heart problems. So the things that come out of our mouth, if you didn't get a chance to hear that message, I didn't really encourage you to, to, to go and listen to that one. But word problems are heart problems. Heart problems are a war between two kingdoms in our heart, the kingdom of my claustrophobic self that seeks my glory, my dreams, my desires, or the kingdom of God that lives for his glory, uh, lavished in his love, empowered by his, his Holy Spirit, and so that's uh, what it isn't. Now, uh, what wisdom does. What wisdom does. Look what he says in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. So he goes through this list. He says it's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. How many are familiar with the movie Forrest Gump? Anybody? Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump, now there's a lot of interesting statements that we've, we've brought into our culture, some of the statements from Forrest Gump, the movie, and so this is one of his statements, see if you can complete this line, it says, my mama always used to say, my mama used to always say, stupid is as, you got it, stupid is as stupid does, James would say, wisdom is as wisdom does. And he's giving us a list of what that looks like. Now, before I give you the list and we work through that, let me once again... let me, let's define it a little bit more about what wisdom is. Wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective according to God's word. It's having a biblical worldview, but not just having that knowledge, but beginning to integrate that knowledge into every aspect of our life. It's competency in life's realities. It is applying the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us, specifically to every area of our life. So wisdom is knowledge rightly applied in your life. So you can have a lot of knowledge, But wisdom is taking that knowledge and beginning to apply it into your life. The word becomes flesh. A wise person is someone who takes the truth and and, and makes it flesh. Let me give you just a couple quick illustrations before we work on this list. So let's just say that you are experiencing suffering that has come out of nowhere. We've got a, a number of families that are currently in our church that just have been knocked sideways because of suffering. So how do, you, how do you begin to apply the truth that God is perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and unlimited in power? How would you apply that to your life if you're going through suffering? That's knowledge. So wisdom is applying those truths specifically to your current experience of suffering by trusting that he is working lovingly, skillfully, and powerfully for your good and his glory doing a thousand things you can't see with your finite mind. It's taking that, that God is perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and unlimited in power and applying it specifically to your, your place of suffering and saying, God, make that real to my heart. Let me trust in you no, regardless of what's going on in my life. Here's another example of that. Maybe you're experiencing relational conflict and uh, because we as Christians are the most loved, forgiven, and reconciled people on this planet, which I believe that. Do you agree with that? That as Christians, because of what, how God has met with us, that we are the most loved, forgiven, reconciled people on this planet Earth. Therefore, therefore, when I enter into relational conflict, I should be the most loving, forgiving reconciling person on this planet because of what I'm receiving from him, and then I'm able to offer it out to you. Does that make sense? But if I'm not, it's because I might know that in my head, but I'm not walking in wisdom. I'm not applying it to the specific areas of my life. And I need to, I need to mature. I need to grow. That's what James is telling us. This is wisdom from above. And it's just saying... God, just let me soak in your love and forgiveness and and reconciliation. Let me realize what I have in you so then, as my life is filled up with you, then I can offer that to others. So listen to me. If there's a breakdown horizontally, the problem isn't horizontally. It's vertical. Man, you need to get on your knees before God and cry out to him. Say, God, I'm not... I'm not feeling it. I'm not experiencing it. I, need, I don't know it. I know it, but I don't, I'm not ex- knowing it deep in my heart so that I can't give it out to others. Lord, I want to be so saturated with your love, forgiveness, and, and reconciliation that I'm, I'm that. I'm walking that out in my life. So that's what true wisdom is. And so and he gives us a list of what that might look like in our lives. So I think it's a good checklist. It's on your notes. So if I'm wise, I won't compromise my integrity. So wisdom is as wisdom does. He uses the word pure there. That's what that word pure means. I'm not going to lie, cheat, manipulate, pretend, play, act, or, or do any sort of game playing. I will be responsible, dependable, confidential, a person of my word. So, so why is integrity so important to relationships? Well, it's because you're not going to trust a person. If you don't trust a person, you're not going to get close to them. Would you agree with that? So, so if you don't trust me, you're not going to get close to me. If I don't trust you, I'm not going to get close to you. But if I see that you have integrity and you're very trustworthy, I'm going to probably get closer to you. By the way, it's folly to get close to people who are not trustworthy. You don't give your heart to people that are not trustworthy. You want to back off. Trust has to be, it can't be demanded. It has to be, must be earned over time based on performance. And so when someone is, uh, becomes trustworthy, I mean, I see this happen all the time in relationships with young people. They get into relationships, before long they're getting too close, and they get, begin to give their heart to someone who is not worthy of their trust, because they haven't earned it over time. So integrity is really important to relationships. And uh, we can get closer to someone when we see that integrity and so I won't compromise my integrity because integrity produces trust and trust leads to greater levels of intimacy. Here's the next one, I won't antagonize your anger. I'm just not going around picking fights with everybody. And sometimes you you get people in your small group, sometimes people in your family are like that. Every time you get around them, they wanna pick a fight with you. They wanna talk about politics or they wanna talk about this or they wanna talk about that. Any number of things. He he uses the word peaceable, so I won't antagonize your anger. So if I'm wise, I'll avoid. So let me go through my list of what that might look like. I'll, I'll avoid comparing. How about this one? You're just like your mom. That's not a good one. That's comparing. How about condemning? Can't you do anything right? Or contradicting, that irritating habit that couples have when they correct each other's stories. Know what I'm talking about? It's like, it wasn't 10 days, it was 12 days. It's like, it doesn't matter, okay? So that creates, that's antagonizing someone's anger or condescending, they treat you like a child. Have you ever had someone speak down to you? That's horrible. In fact, that, I, I've had people do that and I've told them, don't. So don't talk to me like that, please. I'll treat you as an adult, you treat me as an adult and we'll get along really well. And that's healthy, that's just healthy, good communication. When someone's condescending, I feel like you're being very condescending to me. So that's just really healthy. As as, you know, so you don't treat them like a child or complaining, they're always complaining about everything, it just drives on you after a while. Or they're controlling, they try to micromanage you. Do you guys like micromanagers? Can you imagine being married to a spouse that's a micromanager? No, that would be horrible. That's absolutely horrible. So I won't antagonize your anger. So I won't compromise my integrity. I won't antagonize your anger. I won't minimize your feelings. This is a big one. This is the word gentle in that list. And there's two mistakes we fall prey to when we minimize people's feelings. We invalidate or we catapult over their feelings. So we invalidate by this. If I don't feel the way you feel, then your feelings must be illogical or irrational. And so this is how we do it. You shouldn't feel that way. We tell people, you should feel that way, or I know why you feel that way. You shouldn't use any of those uh, phrases, those statements. You, it should be like this. Man, I'm sorry you feel so bad about this. I'm heartbroken that you feel so bad. You, you don't invalidate. You validate their feelings, regardless of whether you agree with their feelings or not. You say, man, it really sounds like you you got the daylights beat out of you. Man, I'm so sorry. And so we invalidate their feelings, don't do that, validate it, but we, we, cut, we try to catapult over them by saying things like this, you think your day was bad, that's not a good way to respond. We try to one-up them, so to speak. So I won't minimize your feelings, I won't criticize your suggestions. This is open to reason, and that's, that's what one of the, the statements there, open to reason, A wise person can learn from anybody. They are willing to listen. They are teachable and open to ideas and suggestions. They're not defensive or stubborn, but a good listener. Now, why would a person be willing to do that? Because they're filled up with God. They're satisfied in Him. They can learn from other people. They're not operating in a deficit. Like, they have to prove something to to everybody around them. So, I won't criticize your suggestions. Here's the next one. I won't emphasize your mistakes. They're full of mercy and good fruits On their honeymoon, Eric took Louise by the hand and said, now that we're married, dear, I hope you won't mind if I mention a few little defects that I've noticed about you. <laughs> That's not a good idea, would you agree? It's not a good, good timing either. It's like, what in the world? <laughs> not at all, Louise replied sweetly. It was those little defects that kept me from getting a better husband. That's good. <laughs> it's like, you want me to list your defects? We'll go, we'll go back and forth with defects here. Uh, let's not do that. Time out. I'm sorry. So love covers what? Multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4, 8. True love forgives the most but condones the least. So when you cover over a multitude of sins, it doesn't mean that you enable someone to hurt you or abuse you, okay? That's not what it's saying here. But there are some things that you just just overlook. I think that's my wife's favorite verse, love covers a multitude of sins. That really bothers me that it's her favorite verse. (laughs) What are you implying? She's got a lot of sins for me to cover. She confronts me too, and I appreciate that. But true love forgives the most but condones the least. Forgives the most but condones the least. I won't emphasize your mistakes. Here, I won't disguise my own weaknesses either, impartial and sincere. So a wise person is open and honest about their their questions, their doubts, their fears, their failures. There's no spinning, blame shifting, or excuse making. So let me let me just talk about excuse making just for a moment. It's not your job. It's not your bratty teenagers. It's not your neighbors that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. You know that, don't you? I've talked about that plenty. Well, I'm just angry. Why are you angry? Well, we just need to move from here because our neighbors, they're just such a pain. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. It's not your neighbors. It's not any circumstances of your life. I hate to tell you this. You've heard me talk about this. James helped us with this at the very beginning of this series. It's not what happens to you, your circumstances, but what happens in you, your character that either makes you or breaks you in life, okay? And so the first thing of really maturing and growing up is to recognize, wait, 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 it doesn't matter how mean the boss is, there's certain ways that I need to learn how to respond, and God, I know you're growing me up in this. And so you're wanting to develop character. It's really hard and painful, but I'm not going to uh, I'm, I'm not gonna become like the evil that's being done to me. I'm going to overcome evil with good. And God, you're going to develop character within me. And so I acknowledge that. God, I need your help, please. So that's part of not blame shifting or excuse making. And by the way, I'm sorry I was wrong. Please forgive me is just common language in healthy relationships. Please, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that that was, that was offensive. And here's what's so fascinating about the gospel. That's why I love the gospel. The gospel makes you others-directed because you already have your heart's deepest longings satisfied in Christ. There's a satisfaction in him. The gospel frees you to love people who hate you without needing love from them in return because all the love you need, you have in Christ Jesus. So, in the words of the great theologian Jack Nicholson from the movie As Good As It Gets... He said to Helen Hunt, you make me want to be a better man or a better person. So the way that we interact with people as Christians should make them want to be better people is what he's saying here. Wisdom is as wisdom does. Just really good insight. Just really good insight. We'll talk more about it next week. So how to get wisdom. And this is where we will transition into really understanding the gospel and so that you guys can understand why we're gonna be dunking a few folks here this morning. We've been doing it all weekend long as they make a public declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to really understand the gospel and this is where the gospel comes in. He says, how to get wisdom. And he talks about that this one kind of wisdom that that earthly uh, demonic is not from above. It's, uh, he, in fact, verse 15 he says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, alluding to that there is one that comes from above. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above. What is the wisdom from above? Colossians 2, 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. True wisdom comes from Jesus comes from Christ Jesus. So how can we have this wisdom? Proverbs 9.10. Proverbs 9.10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So here's your fill in the blank. So the fear of the Lord is a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory and glory of who Christ is and what he has done for us that ruins us for anything else. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're not even entering into the doorway of wisdom until you come to this place of the fear of the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? That, that kind of freaks people out oftentimes, but it's a, it's a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he has done for us that ruins us for anything else. Who is Christ? The second member of the triune God who became flesh, was crucified for our sins, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and is returning to judge the world. What has he done. Jesus is at the heart of what is known as the gospel. Now, listen to me. If the gospel isn't the most amazing thing you've ever heard, then you haven't heard it. Because it will blow you away when you begin to understand it and it gets a hold of your heart. And I hope that you really hear it as I help you to see what the gospel is. Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible puts us all on the kind of a, the ground before the cross, the playing field is level, we're all in the same category, we're all in the same boat. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means that we've lived for our glory, not for his glory, and that has separated us from God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, of sin, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, separation from God, headed for an eternal separation from God. But it doesn't stop there. In Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is what separates Christianity from every other major cult and religion of our world today. Every other major cult and religion of our world today is, is is about earning or achieving. It's a list of rules, and you've got to hit the list, and if you do the list, then the good are in and the bad are out. But you can't earn it or achieve it in Christianity. You can only embrace it and receive it by grace through faith in Christ because it's a gift. You don't earn a gift. You just either accept it or reject it. But it's a gift from... It is so... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it tells us in uh, Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for his enemies, you and I, to make us his family. That's the gospel message. And so the gospel is not good advice at what you must do to be right with God. That's every other belief system in our culture today. It is not good advice of what you must do to be right with God. It is good news about what God has done to make us right with him. It's done through Jesus Christ, and I put my faith in him, and I receive his record. He receives my messed-up record, and he died on the cross for me. And so I receive his perfect record, and I can stand before God perfect and complete in him. Being reconciled to him. So the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe have everlasting life. Oh, my goodness. It's a gift. It's a gift. And by grace through faith in him, you enter into it. And this eternal life, I don't even have time to even talk about that. It's more than just a quantity of life. It's a quality of life, of, of meaning, hope, and happiness that all of the success in this world cannot give to you and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. It's out of this world what he offers us. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for that sound effect, sir. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely amazing absolutely amazing. Okay. Let me keep going here. So so the cross is the greatest act of wisdom and peacemaking of all of history. It reveals that God is both just and loving at the same time. In his justice, he passed the required sentence of death on our sin. And then in his love, he took that punishment himself in our place for our sins, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And those that are getting baptized here this weekend, we baptized some last night, the first service, and now we'll be baptizing in just a few moments here this last service here of our, of our morning time and and that's what they're doing. They're making a public declaration of their faith in Christ that they're identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Substitutionary atonement. As they're getting into the water, they're saying, what he did, he did for me. And I'm receiving that fully and I'm making that public. Here's the last statement of your notes. Last statement. Wisdom. Wisdom is not a technique to be mastered, but a relationship to be enjoyed and celebrated as you daily grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus was the wisest man who ever walked a planet. The key to, to being like Jesus is being with Jesus because the more you are with Jesus, the more you become like him. You become like Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you've never made a confession of faith, this would be a great, great time to, to, to give your life to Jesus, to commit your life to him. And so we'll give you a moment just to do that. And uh, you'll see more clearly what those that are making this public declaration here this morning in the water are doing. So God, we, we love you. We worship you. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The cross is the greatest act of wisdom and peacemaking in all of history, that through the cross you have reconciled us to yourself. And so by grace, through faith in Christ, we are set free from the penalty and the power of sin. And one of these days we will be set free from the very presence of sin with you for all eternity. And so if you've never made a confession of faith, this is what it would be like. It's, let me kind of walk you through what we would call here, at doesn't raise the ABCs of of confessing Christ as Savior the A re- represents our acknowledgement of sin it starts there you acknowledge that your sin separates you from God your sin separates you from God all have sin and fall short of the glory of God and, and you, you recognize it's not the good or in the bad or out it's the humble or in the prouder out it's recognizing and, and humbling yourself before God acknowledging Acknowledging your sinfulness. The B is believing that Christ died in your place for your sins. And then C is confessing him, his Savior and Lord, giving your life to him. And so, God, I pray that those maybe for the first time here this morning are doing that. I pray that you'd seal the deal in their heart.